Would you take your Bibles and turn to Zechariah chapter 7? We're going to be looking at chapter 7 and 8 this morning in our continuing study in these Old Testament prophets. I want to thank Pastor Jason for the messages he shared. He always does such a great job, and it's, it's really uh, fun to be able to share this ministry of preaching and bringing you the word and to see uh, God use Pastor Jason in that in such a great way. Uh, today, as I said, we're going to be looking at chapters 7 and 8. I'd ask you to just keep your Bible open to them, and I'm going to read the passage as we go along uh, in the message. But let me pray for us this morning. Father, as we come to your word, thank you for the power that is there. Thank you for this awesome privilege that we have your word, your book, the truth that you have shared and revealed to us that we might know you and know your son. You show us how we are to live. You show us what it means to be a follower of Christ. You instruct us. You give us wisdom and guidance, comfort and hope. And so, Father, today as we come to your word, I pray that we would listen with reverence, that we would hear what you want to say to us, and that we would be quick to put it into practice in our life. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, in every family, there's probably one child who asks a lot of questions. If you think about your family either growing up or maybe your kids now, you know, you probably can identify uh, that person in your family who just has always been more inquisitive. In our family, that was Jason, our second son. And from the time he was little, he was always asking questions. You could just see his brain was working on stuff all the time. And I remember in those years when he was in middle school into high school, there was about a five-year period where it seemed like every night around 9 o'clock at night, you know, he'd come and he'd find me wherever I was or if I was upstairs, he'd come on up and he'd want to talk and he'd ask some questions. And so, you know, I, I remember, you know, as he got older, those questions started to get tougher. I mean, he'd ask questions about, life, about his faith, about something he was reading in the Bible or maybe a book that he was reading. And when he got into high school, he started reading the works of the theologian uh, John Owens. Now, if you're not familiar with John Owens, John Owens lived in the 1600s and he was one of the greatest of the British theologians. In fact, J.I. Packer once said that if the Puritans were the redwoods in the forest, John Owens was the tallest of the redwoods. And he wrote some very interesting books with titles like this, uh, great titles, like one of his volumes was The Death of Death in the Death of Christ. Now, isn't that a great title? The Death of Death in the Death of Christ. And you think about that, and that just says a lot right there. He wrote a classic that was called On the Mortification of Sin. How do we as Christians put sin to death in the body? How do we overcome the lust of the flesh or pride or all those kind of things that can trip us up? Well, on this particular night, Jason had been reading Owen's book on communion with God. And he came up and he asked me the question. He said, Dad, what's the difference between communion or fellowship with the Father and communion with the Son, and communion with the Holy Spirit. And I looked at him, and I kind of paused, you know, and I'm thinking, you know, it's 9 o'clock, the lights are starting to go off for me, I'm winding down, and so I said what any good dad would say, I said, go ask your mother. 
<laughs> no, I, re I really didn't do that. Uh, <laughs> I might have thought that, but no, no. No, what I said to him was, well, what did Owen say about that? I wanted to see what he was reading. And then we talked about the difference that there is between our relationship with the Father, who is in heaven, who loved us, and sent his son to die for us, our relationship with Jesus, the Son of God who became like us, God incarnate, and the Holy Spirit who indwells us and empowers us. And there are differences and distinctions, but that gives you an example of the kind of questions that Jason would ask and why he's in seminary, you know, studying to be a theologian and to teach Old Testament, because God is wired in that way. Well, in the chapters we're going to look at this morning, we have a group that came to the priests in Jerusalem with a question. They had been doing their own thinking, reading, studying. And it said that in the fourth year of King Darius, the word of the Lord came to Zechariah on the fourth day of the ninth month, the month of Kislev. And the people of Bethel had sent Sherezer and Regamelech together with their men to entreat the Lord by asking the priests of the house of the Lord Almighty and the prophets, should I mourn and fast in the fifth month as I have done for so many years? So here came this delegation, a group of men from Bethel, which is about 12 miles north of Jerusalem, to ask the priest a question about fasting. And to put it in setting, two years have passed since they have started their work on the temple. The date is December 7th, 518 B.C. The temple will be completed in two more years. In 516 B.C., it's going to be completed, which, interestingly, is 70 years after its destruction in 586 B.C. It is interesting when you look at the Scripture and you think of this seven-year period of rest that was going to be given to the land as a discipline for their sin, you see it is true in terms of the people. The first wave of people were carried off in 606 B.C. with Daniel and his friends who went into captivity, and they returned in 536 B.C. under Zerubbabel. When you look at the land having its rest, it's 70 years of rest, 586 to 516. When you look at the um, uh, temple being destroyed and then rebuilt, it's 70 years. And so you have this interesting period of time that is now passing, and these men came with a question. Should we continue to fast in the fifth month? And here's what was going on. In the Old Testament law, the Old Testament required only one fast for the Jewish people, and that was on the Day of Atonement, Yom Kippur. But during the exile, the Jews who were living in Babylonia added four more fasts. They fasted in the 10th month, to mark the beginning of the siege of Jerusalem. They fasted in the fourth month, on the day the walls of Jerusalem were breached by the Babylonians. They fasted on the fifth month, the day that Jerusalem was destroyed and the temple was burned. And they fasted in the seventh month, on the day when Gedaliah, their governor, was assassinated. And so they had added all these fasts to commemorate what had happened and to mourn and grieve and pray and they came and they said, is the exile over? Do we need to continue to fast in this way? Or is there a new day coming? And I think when they came that day to ask this question, they really expected a yes or no answer. But instead, the answer that they were given was far more challenging and encouraging than they could have imagined. 
And it is challenging and it is encouraging to us when we understand what God has to say here. It was a call to true religion. Now let me unpack that for us. As we go through chapters 7 and 8, there are four questions that I would like us to think about this morning as we make an application to our own life. Number one, are we serving ourselves or God? That's the question being asked in the first seven verses. So here's this delegation who comes, and they want to know, should we continue to fast? And we pick up the story in verse 4. It says, Then the word of the Lord Almighty came to me, Ask all the people of the land and the priests, when you fasted and mourned in the fifth and seventh months for the past 70 years, was it really for me that you fasted? And when you were eating and drinking, were you not just feasting for yourselves? Are these not the words the Lord proclaimed through the earlier prophets, when Jerusalem and its surrounding towns were at rest and prosperous, and the Negev and the western foothills were settled? When you fasted, was it really for me or was it for yourselves? That's the question that God was asking them. He's asking them, have you learned the lessons of history? Have you understood and repented from what took place when once the land was full and you were prosperous and settled in this land? This passage highlights the danger of religious rituals and formalism. There are times when we can do the right thing but for the wrong reasons. There are times when people can do even what God has asked us to do, but their heart is not right with God and their motives are wrong, and because of that, it counts for nothing. And fasting is one of those things where that can happen. You see, fasting is about repentance and turning from sin. It is about seeking the Lord and hungering for him more than we do for our daily bread. And so when people fast, it is to be done with seriousness, earnestness, turning from sin, admitting our need for God, humbling ourselves before him, and seeking his aid. Fasting is not something we do to call attention to ourselves. You know, fasting is not like running a 5K or a 10K or a marathon where, you know, we may do that and then say, you know, like, hey, this weekend, you know, I ran a 5K or a 10K or I checked that one off my list. I actually made it and ran a marathon, you know, and have been training and working. And there are people who do that, and those are great things to do. And I've done 5Ks and 10Ks. But this isn't something that we do when it comes to fasting. We don't go around as though we're boasting, saying, well, I did a three-day fast, or I did a two-week fast, or I did a 40-day fast, as though that makes me more spiritual. We're losing the whole point of the fast if we do that. Fasting is about seeking the Lord. Fasting isn't about self-pity. It's not a time when we just say, woe is me, and you know, pour out our complaint to God as though it's all about me again. It's not something we do to manipulate God, thinking that if I do this, then God is obligated to answer my prayer. Fasting is also certainly not a weight loss program. A few years ago, the New York Times ran an article called Fashionable Fasting. And they were talking about how eating in chic restaurants was out and not eating was in. 
And according to that article, people were paying as much as $3,500 a week to visit a health spa where they would not eat. (laughs) They would just fast. And while there may be some health benefits to fasting, that's not the point of a religious fast. Fasting is about hearing God. It's about turning to him in humility and repenting of our sin. And the proof that our heart is right with God is seen in our obedience. And that's why he said, and he talked about, isn't that what the earlier prophets said? Isaiah, Amos, 1 Samuel all agree that obedience takes precedence over sacrifice. That to obey is better than the fat of lambs. To do what God has asked is better than any offering that you would bring. And he's not saying that fasting is wrong or offerings are wrong. There are things that God asks us to do, but the heart must be right with him. And so you take that and you apply that to ourselves and you can ask the question about Sunday worship. You know, do we come and worship on Sunday? Do I do this or do you do this because it makes us feel better? Is that the main reason we come? Or do we come because we like singing? It was interesting to talk to the Germans in Scandinavia with the lack of attendance and how people have fallen away from the church. He made the comment that there, people still like to sing, though. So they get together for choirs or they'll sing some of these traditional songs. But it doesn't mean a thing if the heart is not right with God. When we serve God, when we do acts of service or kindness, or when we give in an offering, are we doing that so that people will think well of us, calling attention to ourselves, or do we do it because the love of Christ has so changed our heart that we want others to know him and we want to give back to him or we want to join with him in his work? Or take a holiday or observance like Christmas. Is Christmas for us about Jesus and his coming to earth? Or is it about all the other stuff, the decorations, the family gatherings, the parties, the presents? I mean, I know there are people who love Christmas, but they don't love Jesus. And they're missing the whole point of what that day is about. Whom are we serving? Is it God or ourselves? That's the question that God was asking. And if I were these guys who had come that morning, I'd be going, man, That is challenging. I I just wanted a yes or no answer, and here I am. I'm getting much more to think about. A second question we see in this text is, are we listening to God or to ourselves? And we see that in verses 8 to 14. Listen to what he writes here. And the word of the Lord came again to Zechariah, and he said, this is what the Lord Almighty says, administer true justice, show mercy and compassion to one another, Do not oppress the widow or the fatherless, the alien or the poor. And in your hearts, do not think evil of each other. But they refused to pay attention. Stubbornly, they turned their backs and stopped up their ears. They made their hearts as hard as flint and would not listen to the law or to the words that the Lord Almighty had sent by his spirit through the earlier prophets. So the Lord Almighty was very angry. When I called, they did not listen. So when they called, I would not listen, says the Lord Almighty. 
I scattered them with a whirlwind among all the nations where they were strangers. The land was left so desolate behind them that no one could come or go. And this is how they made the pleasant land desolate. In those years of captivity, nobody was farming the land, or very few were, so it became overgrown with weeds and thorns and briars, and it uh, was inhabited again by wild animals. It became a dangerous place to live and be because of their sin. So here we see the word of the Lord coming a second time to Zechariah, and God says, this is what I desire from my people. Administer true justice. Now, justice here is not a reference to the legal court. It's not just judicial decisions being fair or honest or good. Justice here means the proper ordering of all society according to God's word. It's bigger, it's broader. It's saying that all of life, whether it is business or commerce or government or law or education or music, entertainment, whatever it is, should be ordered according to God's word. That's the meaning of having a just society. And when he says that we are to show mercy and compassion, that word mercy is so rich that one English word just can't fill it all. It's the word hesed in Hebrew, and it means covenant faithfulness or covenant loyalty. It has both aspects of being faithful to God and showing mercy toward people, or it's keeping his word, keeping the covenant, living it out. It's to live as the people of God. And then thirdly, he says, don't oppress the widow, the fatherless, the alien, or the poor. We see here God's concern for the least of these, and that is part of keeping the covenant and our responsibility to one another as we live and inhabit this land. Don't abuse or take advantage of the weak. Instead, defend and protect them. Well, that's what Micah the prophet had also said two centuries before. When he said, he has showed you, O man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you but to act justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God? You know, those are powerful verses that affirm that what God desires most in us is a heart that is obedient to what he has asked us to do. But what happened? Their forefathers would not listen, and we see that in verse 11. They refused to pay attention. They turned their backs to God. And here, Zechariah is taking an illustration from the animal world, where if you grew up on a farm that had animals and you work with them, you may have seen this kind of behavior. But it's like if you had a horse or a mule or a donkey that was just being stubborn and didn't want to listen to you, and it just it turns its back to you. It knows what you want, but it turns its back, just like a young child sometimes will you know, cover their eyes and think, if I can't see you, you can't see me. And they acted that way, and it was silly, it was foolish, as though God would not see. They stopped up their ears, you know, I can't hear you. They made their hearts as hard as flint. And so God said in verse 13, when I called, they would not listen. So when they called, I would not listen, says the Lord Almighty. That's a pretty sobering verse, isn't it? God had called to them repeatedly over and over again. Isaiah says that God held out his arms to a faithless people, inviting them to return, and they would not listen. 
And so finally that day came when God acted in judgment and the Babylonians came upon them and they cried out to God and God would not listen to them. He scattered them with a whirlwind among the nations and they were dispersed and the land became overgrown. I think about that with America and I think about that for his church here today. Are we listening to God or to ourselves? Are we listening to his word and doing what he has asked or are we listening to ourselves and the counselors of this age who in their wisdom think this is the way we should go? It's interesting in American history, I ran across this um, base online that was put together by Moody Publishers. I'm gonna set it up just a little bit. And that if you go back in our country not too far to the 1950s, and you know the phrase, in God we trust? Well, that's been on our coins since 1864 during the Civil War, but it was not put on our paper currency until 1957. In 1956, there was a joint resolution passed both houses, House and Senate, and was put into law by President Eisenhower at that time um, that made, in God we trust, the official model of the United States. That was 1956, in God we trust. We affirmed that, thought that was a good thing to put on our currency at that time. And then when you think about the decisions that have been made since then, have kind of kept moving farther and farther away, it wouldn't surprise me if one day that's taken off of our currency too. But Moody put together these slides, a timeline of the steps that America has taken. Starts with 1962. Uh, and I, I apologize, you can't read the writing. I'll tell you what's written in that box there, but I thought it'd be helpful to see these pictures. There's a picture of children praying in a schoolroom. 1962, the Supreme Court ruled that school-sponsored prayer in public schools was un unconstitutional. Now, I think there's young people today who probably had no idea that there was a time when you could pray in school. I mean, I think back to when I was in fifth grade, um, the Gideons would come to our school. They'd come right in the classroom, fifth grade every year. They'd come in there, and they would um, share, and they'd talk about, you know, at the back of the Gideon New Testament, there's a plan of salvation, and here's how you can receive Christ as your Savior and Lord. And if you wanted a copy of the New Testament, you could pick that up. If you wanted to pray that prayer, you could take that, read that, and put your name in there in the back of that New Testament, and it was good. And it was fine to do that in our schools. And then 1962, the Supreme Court ruled that any kind of school-sponsored prayer is unconstitutional. So all of a sudden, those baccalaureate services had to be moved out of the schools. You couldn't pray at a graduation ceremony, and all of those things began to change. 1973, picture of an ultrasound here. It was the year that Roe versus Wade uh, was the Supreme Court ruling that women were given the right to an abortion. It marked a huge cultural shift in our country in terms of moving away from Christian values. And since that time, over 50 million babies have been killed. And I think about that. The oldest of them, 1973 to now, they'd be 42 years old. I think about the impact of 50 million children and young adults in our country in terms of the workforce, in terms of employment and all different kinds of occupations, in terms of our schools and education, in terms of people who are going to pay into Social Security even in the years ahead as the workforce continues, all of those social implications that would come 
from an additional 50 million people in our land who are not here because the Supreme Court ruled that it was legal for a woman to have an abortion at any stage. I think of 1980, Supreme Court ruled, um, here we have a picture of the Ten Commandments. It ruled that having the Ten Commandments in a public school violated the First Amendment Establishment Clause. But that was too much. It was the establishment of a specific religion. And again, being a, a kind of changing, reinterpreting what our founding fathers thought when they were talking about religion, they were referring to Christianity. They made some pretty bold statements that we are a Christian nation, that our government only works for a religious people and they meant a Christian people. And now that was taken out. And I remember the day growing up when, you know, the Ten Commandments were generally accepted across the board in our schools, our government, you know, law enforcement, church, everybody was kind of in agreement that these were pretty good things. Thou shalt not kill, thou shalt not steal, thou shalt not bear false witness, thou shalt not covet. And all of that began to change. You move ahead, you jump ahead a number of years just to show how this is accelerating. 2010, the Affordable Care Act mandated that all companies provide their employees with all forms of contraception, even those that are abortive. Hobby Lobby, Christian company, objected, had to go to court to fight this thing, was faced with a dilemma, either compromise their values or pay a huge fine. And it illustrated the challenge that it is now to live as Christians and operate a business in this kind of pluralistic society. 2012, Chick-fil-A, remember this case? When Chick-fil-A, the president, affirmed a biblical view of marriage. And there was this firestorm or reaction against him because he believed that marriage is between a man and a woman. So much so that Chicago Mayor Rahm Emanuel vowed to block any plans by Chick-fil-A to open a new store in Chicago. You know, and it's like, wait a minute. There's no discussion here. There's no openness to different points of view on this. It's like, no, you believe in a traditional view of marriage. You are not fit to do business in our city. 2013. Supreme Court struck down the Defense of Marriage Act, setting the stage for the recent decision. 2014, a cadet at the U.S. Air Force Academy was ordered to erase a Bible verse. He had Galatians 2.20 written on the whiteboard outside his room. You know, I think of how many vulgar, profane, pornographic things are protected under free speech today. And people argue to defend that. And here is a kid at wanting to write a Bible verse on his whiteboard outside his room, and he had to take that down. 2014 also, President Obama issued an executive order that forbid any federal contractor from discriminating against employees on the basis of sexual orientation or gender identity. But the result of that was that any religious organization that had a federal contract could not make employees meet faith-based requirements. Now, we are not for discrimination. We are against that, too. But what this order set up again was this conflict between those who want to live and practice their business according to their faith and the challenge that there is now to do that. And then in 2015, recently here, we had the five, five to four Supreme Court ruling that made same-sex marriage legal in all states. 
It's been a pretty dramatic step-by-step shift that has been taking place in our country. So how do we respond to all of that? Well, you know, I look at that and I think I want to make the point that these decisions, when we talk about justice, are not just about things that happen in the Supreme Court or in government. Justice is bigger than that. Justice means that we as Christians are to be concerned for the poor and the less fortunate in our society. It embraces all of life. But clearly, we have some challenges that we are facing today, and I think the message for us is to remember that Christians have always been countercultural. Christianity is always countercultural. We don't look to the government to set the agenda. We look to God's word, and we live faithfully according to that. And we continue to live our lives. God's not surprised by any of these decisions. He is still sovereign. He's still in control. And what he is asking of his church is to be faithful, to preach the gospel and share the good news. You know, at our recent EFCA conference, our annual conference here, there were a couple encouraging things to me that I wanted to pass on to you. One of those was the change that's taking place in our denomination. An emphasis of our past president, Bill Hamill, is that our denomination should reflect more the demographic of our country, and we need to move out of our Scandinavian roots, so we're not just, you know, a bunch of Norwegian Swedes or Germans or other European immigrants that are worshiping together, but to embrace others. And today I can tell you that 22% of our evangelical free churches are ethnic, African-American, Hispanic, Korean, Chinese, Indian, other cultures that have been embraced and welcomed and have come into this particular denomination. And another thing that has happened is that we have an emphasis on reaching out to immigrants. There's a ministry called Immigrant Hope that is working to help those that are immigrants to our country become legal citizens of our country, to help them through that process, to assist them and love them, and share the good news of Christ with them. Well, let's move on. A third question we see in this this text is found in verses 1 to 17 of chapter 8. And it's the question, are we believing a lie or are we believing the truth? Are we believing a lie or the truth? And I think Satan comes along and he wants us to doubt the truthfulness of God's word. And in this passage, there are so many promises and blessings that God gave to Israel that carry over into the church. I want you to take a look, and I won't read all of this, but I'm just going to mention these to you. Some of God's promises are these, that I am very zealous for Zion. God loves his people, and he is active in their behalf. He said, I will return to Zion and I will dwell in Jerusalem. That day is coming. And the day is coming when Jerusalem will be called the city of truth and the mountain of the Lord, the holy mountain. In other words, the city will reflect the very character of God. He said, I will bless my people with safety and security. He gives a picture here of old men and women being able to walk with a cane down the street and not be afraid, and young children, boys and girls playing in the streets and not being afraid. There'll be safety and security. He pictures the day is coming when I will save my people and I will bring them back from all the nations. 
and they will be my people, and I will be their God, and I will dwell among them, and that age-old promise will be fulfilled. So let your hearts be strong and carry on the work. He said, I will bless your hand with a, your land, excuse me, with abundance, and you will be a blessing to all the peoples of the earth. It was a fulfillment to the promise that was made to Abraham. And we haven't seen all of that happen yet. Part has been fulfilled. Part of it is being fulfilled today, and part is yet to come. The part that's been fulfilled is that the temple was rebuilt. Christ returned. The glory of that second temple was greater than the first temple because Jesus, Emmanuel, was there and dwelt among them. Part of this is being fulfilled today in that the gospel is being brought to the nations through the church and people from all different ethnic groups are coming to faith in Jesus Christ. And this great missionary force has gone out to bring that good news of the gospel to the ends of the earth and we are part of that. And we're joining in that work and God is moving. And yet there is still more to come. That day is gonna come when God will establish his kingdom on earth and Christ will rule from Jerusalem and all the nations will come before him. Do we believe that? Do we believe that God is still at work? Do we believe even that it is possible for America to experience a great revival in our day once again? If we do, then these are the things that we should be doing. And we see that in verse 16. Speak truth to each other. Render sound judgments. Do no harm to your neighbor. Do not swear falsely. Live as the people of God. Be faithful. Trust God and watch him work. And finally, the last question I would ask here is are we ready for the future? And we see this in verses 18 through the end of the chapter. That this future will be greater than we think. And take a look at what he says here in verse 18. He said, again, the word of the Lord Almighty came to me. This is what the Lord Almighty says. The fasts of the fourth, fifth, seventh, and tenth months will become joyful and glad occasions and happy festivals for Judah. Therefore, love, truth, and peace. There's a day coming when our fasting is going to turn to feasting. There's a day coming when there's going to be this great celebration that will be like a wedding celebration. And all sorrow and all suffering will be gone. And the people of God will live and worship him freely. There's coming a day when people will hunger for God. Rather than rejecting what God has said, they'll seek out his word and his truth. He tells us in verse 20, that many peoples and inhabitants of many cities will yet come, and the inhabitants of one city will go to another and say, let's go at once to entreat the Lord and seek the Lord Almighty. I myself am going, and many peoples and powerful nations will come to Jerusalem to seek the Lord Almighty to entreat him. I mean, this is almost too astounding for the Jews in Zechariah's day to believe. I mean, here they've been in captivity, they've been oppressed, beaten down, they are small in number, and God is saying, there's coming a day when all the nations are going to come to you. They're going to come to the church. They're going to come to the people of God. And they will come to hear what the Lord has to say. That's astounding. When we live in a time when it seems like it's going the other direction to think of a day 
when the world will be hungry for the word of God. And not only that, he tells us in verse 23, that in those days, 10 men from all languages and nations will take firm hold of one Jew by the hem of his robe and say, let us go with you because we have heard that God is with you. When it says 10 men, 10 there is used as a symbol for completeness of all the nations. They will take hold of a Jew who is going to his homeland. They'll take hold of that believer who knows the true God and they'll say, can we go with you? Because we have heard that God is with you. Wow. I believe that's a description of the millennial kingdom when Jesus comes back to earth. And every now and then, we see glimpses of that in our world. When the church rises up and lets the light of Christ shine. We see those glimpses like what happened in Charleston, what Pastor Jason shared last week. When you think of this tragic situation where the pastor and members of their church were murdered by Dylan Roof, and yet at those funeral services they could express forgiveness and pray for him. That's astounding, and that caused one of those writers, you know, who's not a believer to say either they are insane, they're crazy, or they're lying, or there is something greater here that I don't know. It's at moments like that when things look so bad that the church rises up and declares the glory of God and that light shines. And this is such a moment for us. It is also what was said about the early church over 1900 years ago. Aristides was describing Christians to the Roman Emperor Hadrian and he said this. He said, they love one another. They never fail to help widows. They save orphans from those who would hurt them. If they have something, they give freely to the man who has nothing. If they see a stranger, they take him home and are happy as though he were a real brother. They do not consider themselves brothers in the usual sense, but brothers instead through the Spirit in God. Here was the government of its time looking at these Christians and the way that they lived and shaking their head and saying, I don't get it. But I'll tell you, here are people that love one another that are kind and compassionate, that care about the least of these in our world. You know, they were nameless Christians. History doesn't record who they were, but they were superstars in the eyes of God. They shone brightly in a very dark world. And I believe that if God were speaking to us to say, okay, what is it I want you to do today? He would repeat these words of Scripture that he has given us that are already there that we are to love the Lord our God with all our heart and soul and mind and strength. We're to love our neighbor as ourselves. We are to speak the truth in love. Don't be afraid. Don't be ashamed of the gospel. We're to stay faithful and live according to his word. Don't be anxious. Don't be fearful. Trust me and pray constantly. Share the good news so that others can know me and remember that I am still on my throne and I will return. And I think that's just what he would say. Stay faithful. Be the people of God in the midst of a generation that is changing. But God never changes. Let's pray. Father, I do pray that you would empower us by your Holy Spirit to live with confidence and boldness. To not be ashamed of the gospel or to speak your truth. To live by it. 
and to share that good news with others so that they might come to know you too. Thank you, Father, for the encouragement we see here in Zechariah of the people who did that and you used them significantly. And I pray that in our generation, that we as a church, we as individual believers, would continue to walk faithfully with you. In Jesus' name, amen.